Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. conversation here at the outset about who we follow, what we follow, and how we as members of a culture that absolutely highly values science, no question about it, Um, but as Christians, we're also not going to be captive to what I might describe as the safetyism of scientism in relationship to COVID-19. So the... uh, the showdown going on is between Nancy Pelosi and the Archbishop of San Francisco's uh, Catholic Diocese. And so uh, Speaker, uh, House Speaker, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, has basically said, uh, well, here's the quote. She has um, corrected, sought to correct the Catholic Archbishop of San Francisco, um, saying that he should, quote, follow science rather than advocate for in-person gatherings for mass and worship. Um, So Archbishop Salvatore Joseph Cordelione um, was protesting the limits on people's opportunities to gather, practicing Catholics in particular. And, um, And she said, with all due respect to my archbishop, I think we should follow science on this. Now, let's just pause there for just a moment. Um, There's some important words in there. Is she actually giving all due respect to her archbishop? Uh, I mean, you might want to pause just right there and recognize that a professing Catholic publicly um, contradicting and then criticizing and then correcting her archbishop is actually patently contrary to showing that individual the respect due his position in the church that she claims to be a part of. So there is a conversation here to be had about people who claim to be Roman Catholics, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, others, who actually do not follow in many, many ways the teachings of their own church. And so those are good conversations to have with people who profess to be um, believers or followers of a particular religious order or practice for us to say, okay, now help me understand, help me understand, you profess to be Catholic, you profess to be Roman Catholic, and yet, um, let's say on the issue of abortion, you, you clearly depart from what your church teaches, or on marriage, or on human sexuality or identity. You clearly depart from your church's teaching on these things. And you also clearly depart from your church's teaching, in this case, the Catholic Church, that in-person communion, that showing up and actually having an in-person confession with your priest and then receiving in-person absolution and then receiving in-person communion, these are all part and parcel of 
Catholicism, of the practice of being a Catholic. Now, for those of us that are evangelical Christians, we might say, you know, that's just not how um, I experience any of those things. Well, fine, but Nancy Pelosi does not profess to be an evangelical Christian. And she even acknowledges here that um, that Archbishop Car- uh, Salvatore Cardellone is her archbishop. She claims him, my archbishop, with all due respect to my archbishop. I think we should follow science on this. So it's not just the due respect, the, the respect due to her archbishop as a Roman Catholic. It's also the assertion of what she thinks, her individual autonomy, usurping in this case what, as a person of a particular faith, um, she is actually supposed to be submitting to what Catholics understand God has revealed to be true or required of them as Catholics. And so the assertion of her individual autonomy, I think, I think, and then the assertion of that thought process over others, I think we should follow science on this, um, would all be very, very interesting conversations to have with your Catholic friends um, and, you know, and others who seek to, frankly, elevate science at every turn even though science has not yet settled its mind on any of this yet. But those who would say we should follow science on this, well, following science, um, I, and again, you, you've you heard me on many, 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 many occasions say, yes, I think we should all be wearing masks. I agree with this practice. I think social distancing is um, is prudent until we know more. But I also recognize as an evangelical Christian that safety, my personal safety, this physical life is not all there is. And not my highest calling. And so um, if you want to receive in-person communion, you are probably going to be defying some rule or regulation related to that. Because in order to receive in-person communion, the sacrament uh, in the Catholic Church and actually in any of the churches that require in-person communion as a part of uh, their ongoing understanding of the Christian practice of faith, uh, they're going to be breaking the rules related to what science says right now in terms of our interaction and gathering with others. So I just set that out there as a story worth uh, telling. Justin Gibney's waiting right now from the AND campaign. He and I are going to talk about a piece posted by Tim Keller, How Do Christians Fit into the Two-Party System? We're also going to talk a little bit about the mob mentality of politics. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Justin Gibney. You can find him at theandcampaign.org. Justin, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. How's it going? Oh, I'm well. How are you? Can't complain. Well, that's good. I, I find it doesn't it doesn't help anyway. <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk about um, this piece that you and I have both read by Tim Keller. Many people listening will recognize him as the uh, founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, uh, Tim has retired from that position, but he still works with pastors and congregations across the country, encouraging them. This piece, which you know notably is in the New York Times, this opinion piece: How do Christians fit into the two-party system? 
And then he says they don't. The subhead, the historical Christian positions on social issues don't match up with contemporary political alignments. I'm suspecting you liked this piece. Loved it. Yeah. I loved so let's it. Just, just yeah, just highlight the things in it that you just hope people will go back and um, really sink them, sink their teeth into. Yeah, I think the point that Keller is making, and it's one that the AN campaign makes quite a bit, is that Christians, you know, neither party is going to represent Christianity perfectly. Now, that doesn't mean you can't choose a party. I don't think he's saying that you can't uh, kind of um, uh, work through parties and work through party politics uh, from a practical perspective. But you should not find your identity there and you should always be willing to critique your party and to be willing to correct your party when necessary. And that's something we just don't see enough. And so Christians don't fit within either party perfectly because all of uh, both of them fall short of what the gospel demands of us. And when we fail to realize that and we, we act like our party is the one that Christians have to be in, then we're really missing something. And we may actually be indoctrinated by some of our, our party orthodoxy rather than Christian orthodoxy. You, um, you said something interesting there that I'm guessing for some people um, could use some unpacking. What the gospel demands of us or what the gospel requires of us. Um, it's interesting to me, Justin, the way... Um, the way you phrase that, um, because you're you're not saying a particular church, you're not saying a particular variety of Christianity. You're saying that the gospel itself places demands on us and requires um, not only certain actions but certain attitudes. Talk with us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, as you and I know, the gospel is way bigger than politics, right? It's, it's not something that should just be used for as an as an uh, a means for political ends. But the gospel certainly has political implications, right? Because the gospel has implications for everything in our world. And if you look at the gospel, you look at the life of Jesus and how he interacted with people. One of the things that we pulled out of it was there was this compassion, but also conviction where that he where he cared for people. But he didn't kind of condescend to them or, or just kind of say, oh, bless your heart. He also corrected them. Right. And so Christians not only need to be compassionate when we talk, uh, when we're thinking about politics and thinking about issues. But we also need to know we also know that there's the truth and that we need to be, you know, solid in our convictions. And I think when we work from that framework, we do a lot better than just accepting what our party gives us. I don't think Christians can ever just accept what our party gets gives us or how our party frames an issue. Uh, as someone who's who's worked in politics for a long time, the way that issues are framed and the positions that parties take is not always a very clean process. It's not a process that uh, Christians should just automatically go along with. And so we have to be thoughtful. We have to be critical thinkers when we go into politics and make sure that, again, we're critiquing our party and, and willing to go against it when necessary. Some of what I see in terms of people's um, reactions and responses to pieces like that uh, in the New York Times by Tim Keller. And again, I just really commend it to uh, to your reading if you're listening right now. How do Christians fit into the two-party system? They don't. Um, the, the, in my view, really unnecessarily hostile and um, negative reaction and response, let's just say by some family action organizations across the country. I mean, here was a headline in Illinois. Tim Keller just gave Christians permission to support the party of human slaughter. And Justin, I'm just curious, as a Christian who who also happens to be a Democrat, how do you react to that kind of 
language and that kind of positioning and failure to actually read and understand what Tim Keller has said? Uh, it's sad uh, because, as, as you said, whoever made that statement did not read that uh, in, in good faith. Um, you know, Tim Keller has for a long time has been very clear where he stands on the sanctity of life. He's been very clear where he stands uh, when it comes to Christian to the Christian sexual ethic. None of that is in question. Uh, so we, we need to get that straight. And it just shows that too often Christians have connected our faith with a party. Um, and wherever that party goes, we have to accept it. And if there's that one issue or two issues that we support, if they say they support it, then we take it on as our identity. And so anybody who criticizes or even compliments the other, you know, criticizes our side or, or says the other side got something right, you're against us now because the party is us and the party represents us. Well, if that's, that's who represents you and that's who you have your faith in. I, I got some bad news for you. You're going to be let down and you've been led into a place well, I, I believe the Bible on several, several occasions has asked us not to go. Uh, you're putting your faith in something that is not going to be able to give you the return that you think it is. All right, Justin, let's you and I take a very brief break. When we come back, I'd love to talk with you about this mob mentality in politics today. This has actually been a subject of conversation in my own household. Um, so I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation with Justin Gibney. You can find him at the and campaign.org. We'll be right back. All right. If in addition to Mornings with Carmen, you're listening to uh, other podcasts, let me commend to you the Church Politics podcast that my guest, Justin Gibney, uh, co-host with his friend and colleague, Michael Ware. Um, I wanted to highlight uh, one of these that I listened to recently. And now, of course, I'm scrolling through um, I'm scrolling through the, your recent uh, episodes and I'm you know not landing on it really fast. So let me just I, let me let me let you talk about it. Um, you had a, a, a female guest as your third person and um, uh, and you guys were talking about like the legitimate criticisms that a person might have um, of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I thought you guys did a really excellent job walking around in that. Can you can you remember who your guest was with on that conversation? Oh, yeah, for sure. The guest was uh, Catherine Freeman. She was awesome. Oh, yeah, she, she, she was she just it. She was just great. Okay, so thank you for um, now I'm making a note of that. All right. Let's talk a little bit about this mob mentality in politics. First of all, just describe to us what a mob mentality in politics is. Yeah, well, a mob, we've all heard of a mob, right? Uh, it's an unthinking group that just kind of rushes in one direction, you know, that gets all riled up and kind of rushes in one direction. And that's really what we've become in American politics in, in, in a lot of ways. And I think that the statement that you heard, just heard about Tim Keller is an example of mob, the kind of mob mentality, where we're not really thinking through things. We're just saying we're right go get the other guys, right? Make sure we take them out. Um, and, and my point was this, a lot of times in politics, you know, mobs are often formed based on narratives, right? Narratives that scapegoat other people, narratives that de uh, dehumanize or demonize other people. You create these narratives. And I think what's happened is we're more attached to our narrative of our side and our narrative of the other side than we are to the facts. And we don't even admit the facts and we don't even use our principles unless they serve our narrative. 
So everything has to serve our narrative. That's why you can go to a Democrat or go to a Republican and say something that their side clearly did wrong and they won't admit it because they're attached to these narratives and they won't allow anything that's outside of that narrative to change their opinion. And that's really what the mob mentality is about. It's a lack of humility. And most importantly, it's a lack of intellectual honesty because we're not coming into a conversation just trying to find solutions. We're coming into a conversation trying to make sure that we're right and that we prove that the other side's wrong at all costs. And it's really costing our our, uh, public discourse. Um, We talked yesterday uh, with Caitlin Scheiss uh, about her new book, The Liturgy of Politics. And um, she talks about the narrative, right? And what what is the narrative that is providing the foundation? Like, what's the story behind um, the decisions that I'm making and and then uh, my political activism? Like, what is that growing out of? Is that actually growing out of my spiritual formation or is it growing out of some story that some group of people is telling me most often about another group of people? And, you know, and so um, I just I want to just remind people that we had that conversation yesterday and want to continue to direct people to Liturgy of Politics. It's an excellent book. Um, One of the things there that I want to highlight in your piece, the the mob mentality um, of politics, and you guys want to find it, it's posted at thehill.com, but I'll also send it out via my social media. Today's mob mentality politics, just deny it and keep moving. Justin Gibney is the author. He's here with me now. Um, you talk about humility. You talk about intellectual honesty. I think, Justin, that um, at the foundation, people have stopped actively seeking the truth. And instead, are they just parroting other people's talking points? And what I find in my conversations, if you hang in there long enough, if you remain non-defensive long enough to let them, you know, rattle off whatever their talking points are, and then you press them one layer further, they can't, they can't defend any of it. They don't know anything beyond the talking points for the most part. And so I'm, I'm growing in my ability, because you've been helping me, to not only be humble about my own um, views and intellectually honest about my own views, but to really encourage other Christians to press beyond whatever the talking point is and see whether or not that really is what they believe. Yeah, that's right. And, and Carmen, the truth is this this happens in the Bible in, in mm-hmm. Acts when this big riot is started. The Bible says that most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Some were saying one thing, some were saying another. And that's the point of a mob. It's it's not think you don't think right. You don't scrutinize anything. You just go. Uh, and it's sad that Christians would allow themselves to get pulled into these broken political parties, these broken ideological tribes and just go along with it. That's the opposite of being the the salt and the light. That's the opposite of not being conformed to the world. You you have a responsibility as a Christian, and again, I think this is what Tim Keller was getting at, to do better. You have an, you have you know you're supposed to be shedding light on some of those things, even if it means you lose politically, because we have to believe at, as Christians. Yes, we want to win political battles because they're important, but we have to be willing to lose sometimes if that means our witness is the way that it's supposed to be. Otherwise, our, you know, our party and all this stuff is, is an idol. And, and we have to make sure that we're doing things the right way, not just trying to win. All right. I have a listener, a couple of listeners. You're going to want to hear their feedback. Um, first of all, somebody said, I'm 
looking for Justin's podcast, so I have replied to them. It's called the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, and then another listener, where's, uh, here it is. Um, thank you, Justin. Um, this is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And it's helping me right now with a friend. So, Justin, thank you, as always, for joining us. You are helping to equip us for the conversations of the day, and you're doing so in a way that honors Jesus. So we really appreciate it. My pleasure, Carmen. Take care. You guys can find Justin at theandcampaign.org. We'll be right back. All right, yesterday it was Caitlin Scheiss on the Liturgy of Politics. Today it's David French. On Divided We Fall, it is a book that is just available this morning. Today is the day. It's launch day. Uh, David French, if you are not familiar with his name or his writing, uh, let me just really commend to you the French press. You can find it at thedispatch.com. Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore a Nation. If you are increasingly concerned about the divisions we experience, and you actually want to become an agent of uh, remaking America, restoring it to uh, its foundations. This conversation with David French and this book, Divided We Fall, are a don't miss. And yes, we got copies to give away. We'll be right back. This is Max Licato. You know, we're running out. We're running out of days and dates and dances. The hourglass was irreversibly flipped the day we were born, and we've been depleting our resources ever since. Our spending is outpacing our deposits, a fact, I think, that explains the reasoning behind miracle number one in the ministry of Jesus. According to John chapter 2, he was at a wedding. His mother, Mary, came to Jesus with a problem. They have no more wine. Mary presented the problem. Christ was reluctant. Mary deferred, Jesus reconsidered, he commanded, the servants obeyed, and the wineless wedding was suddenly wine flush. And we're left with this message. Our diminishing supplies, no matter how insignificant, matter to heaven. Remember, friends, you are never alone. This is Max Lucado. Joining me now, David French. Um, I could spend all of my time reading his resume, or I could just direct you to thedispatch.com. We're going to talk today about David's book, Divided We Fall. David French, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. I love the French press. I love the dispatch. Uh, and this is an excellent book, although it's really scary. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's 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 the kind of book because what it maps out as a possibility is kind of so bad that if somebody says great book, uh, you wonder, like, did they uh, read it? I, I appreciate I appreciate it. But um, <laughs> yeah, when <laughs> well, a pastor awesome. preaches a sermon that's like prophetic and should have like scorched you and you walk out and you're like, oh, pastor, great sermon. They pretty much know it didn't pierce. It didn't penetrate. This right. book includes um, these very plausible scenarios of how the United States could, in fact, fracture, um, not only weakening our nation, but destabilizing the world. And yet it also casts a really positive vision of how we could, would we find ourselves willing to do so, um, 
be, be people who actually sort of return to classical pluralism, demonstrating true tolerance. Like we do have a way forward. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's uh, the founding fathers were not perfect people, but they did put together a blueprint for how a uh, really diverse, large country. I mean, I mean, diverse on every direction, whether it's religiously diverse, racially diverse, ideologically diverse. They did put together a blueprint as to how a nation like our nation stays together. And one of the things that I point out in the book, one of our problems we have is we've been spending years and years and years diverting from that blueprint, from intentionally forsaking that blueprint. And one of the problems we have in this country is that we are increasingly centralizing power at the exact same time that we're becoming a more diverse people. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do. And, you know, it's easy to sort of say, well, every single election, we call it the most important election of, of our lifetimes. But one of the problems we have is because we've centralized power so much, it's not that every election is the most important in our lifetimes. We often don't know that until hindsight. But what's happening is we're electing the most powerful president, uh, civilian, I mean, uh, um, peacetime president in American history every four years because of how much we're centralizing power in that president's hands. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, right now and in 2016, people are so in such a frenzy and so angry about presidential elections. Some of the um, some of the concepts in the book I mean, I think there, it's very easily, very easy to apprehend what you're talking about if we allow ourselves to be humble enough to see, see ourselves in right. it um, and not become immediately defensive and want to throw it through the closest window. Um, you talk, <laughs> well, because you do, you talk about polarized tribalism and in that yeah. you really call us all out. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I want people to understand, because this book is not a book that's designed to give you talking points to like own the libs or own the conservatives. It's saying this is I'm trying to outline this is what is actually happening in this country. Mm -hmm. And what's actually happening are two sides, red and blue, are building a narrative about the other side that is really scary and bad. And if you're conservative and you read the book and you you'll read, there's a section in the in the very first chapter where I sort of lay out here is how lots of people on the left think about conservatives. And you'll read it and you'll say, that's ridiculous. That's unfair. And then you'll read the part of what conservatives think about um, uh, all too many liberals. And you'll say, yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. That's what those people are like. And but the problem is that we the problem that I lay out is we have those two narratives. And because we are separating geographically, more people are living with others of like mind than any time in recent American history. And because we're becoming more extreme, one thing that happens when people of like mind gather is we get more extreme. And because our political class, the people who pay the most attention to politics, are the most, and this is the some of the crazy research I, I discovered in researching for the book, the people who follow politics the most, the closest, they are the people who are most likely to be wrong about their political opponents. They believe their political opponents are more extreme than they really are. And so a lot of that cable news that you watch or a lot of the Twitter feed you scroll through or the talk radio that you listen to, not this program, of course, but a lot of that that you listen to or read is just wrong and is inflating the threat from your political opponents. And so all those things together work 
to make us uh, siloed in our own communities, increasingly angry and fearful of the other side, and increasingly convinced that the other side is full of terrible people who do terrible things. Yeah, I like the um, observation that we tend to, uh, I mean, you give great statistics on all of these things throughout the book, but, you know, we tend to live in like-minded geographic enclaves. Um, we tend to spend our time with like-minded people. Uh, I, I make the observation here that um, both Antonin Scalia and now Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yeah. who were dear friends, who could not have been further apart from one another ideologically, but were honest-to-goodness dear, dear friends— it is hard to imagine um, that kind of ideological, ideologically divided individuals, let's say, going to bat for one another in this uh, in this next cycle of Supreme Court nominations. I, I'm going to be really surprised if somebody on the extreme left in terms of their understanding of the way the Constitution should be applied today um, at the highest level of the court comes forward to advocate for whoever President Trump's nominee is. Like, I, it's just it's just likely not going to happen. Even if they really are good friends behind the scenes, it's political suicide to come forward and say so. You know, it's gotten so bad, it's not just political suicide, it's a personal risk. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand, uh, if you're not heavily involved in politics, if you're not, if this isn't something that you're, really are focused on on a daily basis, it's often difficult for people to understand how toxic it becomes if you cross tribal lines at all. You know, one of the things is when the two sides are sort of locked in this existential struggle, what's so very important is sort of internal discipline and unity. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's funny if you take, if you sort of look at what cancel culture is, because uh, we're all familiar with, with cancel culture, a lot of the time, and when you look at cancel culture, it's blue on blue or red on red. And what it's aimed at are people who are not sufficiently with the tribe, people who are not sufficiently radical. And, uh, and so what you end up happening is incredible social pressure to be part of the tribe. And if you don't do it, especially if you're a public figure, you'll face, you'll face something much worse than ridicule. You'll often face threats uh, to your life, threats to your family. That's how bad things are getting. And so what ends, what ends up happening is people who are uncomfortable with the polarization will often choose to be quiet. Um, I tell people that uh, people will talk to me when they read a piece where I'm talking about this and I'm very, and I'm, I'm calling out this tendency. I will sometimes have people walk up to me, <laughs> kind of look around and very quietly say, I agree with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, but I agree with you publicly every day. So, um, all <laughs> well, right, fantastic. we got to take a we got to take a very brief break. I'm talking with David French. If you don't already uh, follow what he's writing, um, let me invite you to thedispatch.com. Um, I'm pretty sure if you go there today, you can still jump in on the larger extended conversation they're going to have about the book. Divided we fall. Yes. Um, we're going to have a brief conversation about it here today, but if you go to thedispatch.com, you can actually get in on a, a larger conversation about the book. Um, and also, we've got some copies to give away. So if you're listening right now and you're like, I, I don't want to be the person who's forced to the sidelines in silence. I actually want to be a person um, who helps to positively move the conversation forward 
I'm ready um, to embrace pluralism in the right way. I just need somebody to help me do it. Um, This is the book for you. So go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Thank you to St. Martin's Press for supplying us with copies to give away today, which is book launch day for um, for David French's Divided We Fall. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Continuing my conversation with David French. You ought to check out The Dispatch. It's at thedispatch.com. We are talking today uh, about David's brand new book, just launched, Divided We Fall. Um, we're talking about the the threat that, you know what, America could actually no longer be a union, Like right? We could become a fractured uh, political right. body. Um, and then you talk about then how to restore the nation. Let's talk a little bit about the positive vision. I mean, you know, I've got a listener who um, wants to take the contrarian position and say, hey, isn't advancing pluralism just elitist speak for surrendering your convictions? We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's uh, let's talk about the positive vision first. How do we go about walking humbly into a future filled with hope? Yeah, what we need to do, there, there's two things. One, there's an individual, the, the, the founders created a system that gives us, as individuals and as communities, the ability to live our lives according to our values, our, most, our deepest values. As individuals, that's protected in the Bill of Rights. That's the free speech and the religious liberty and the protections of the due process and all of those things that we often take for granted as Americans, and we do to some greater or lesser degree, we do a pretty good job with that. That's critical from an individual basis. But what I point out is, and this is something that uh, James Madison talked about in Federalist Number 10, if you want to avoid the violence of faction, if you want to avoid that, that those forces that will rip a country apart, uh, you need to have a a system and a structure that allows different communities to live according to their values. And that's federalism. That's the, the force that is against the centralization of the time. And that's the answer to the gentleman who said, this is just surrender. Well, if you have centralization, then it is a zero-sum game. Then it's one side or the other is going to have power, and it's going to be swapped back and forth every four or eight years or sometimes – less than that, depending on Congress's composition, and you get into this just kind of deathmatch struggle that we're in. But when you have federalism, California uh, communities in California can live according to their values. In Tennessee, where I live, you can live according to your values, and you can have you, – you break out of the zero-sum game. Uh, and one of the things that I think people who are deep partisans need to understand is they keep laboring under the misimpression that they can beat their enemies, that they can end this all, that one day they're going to triumph. No, they can't do it because what's happened is our because our, we're so closely divided and because our system is set up to prevent one side or the other gaining sort of dom- the dominant position. We have this counter-majoritarianism in the Constitution. That means that unless we can figure out a way to accommodate, the effort to dominate is going to destroy. And so that's the key. And the problem we have is right now, no people will pay lip service to federalism. They'll say, hey, I love federalism, but they'll do that when they're out of power. When they're in power then they're all about power. And that's this one of the cycles that's really making things difficult for this country. 
This uh, reminds me of a conversation a generation ago um, about a group of people who were in control of of a a very large organization at the time, and I was a part of a group seeking to bring renewal to that organization. Mm. And uh, at the end of a meeting, one of the sort of elder statesmen in the room sort of asked me if I'd wait, you know, wait behind. And I said, yeah. And he said, I don't, I don't think that you understand. The, the people in this room, they just want the jobs of those other people. They don't actually want yeah. the sort of renewal that you're suggesting. They just yeah. want to be in control of the institution. And I, I just, that's so disheartening. This is not about just beating somebody else down so that we can have, you know, I don't know, bigger platforms um, and more control, more command and control. This is so that we as the people of the United States of America can actually live into the realities that the that the founders envisioned. I mean, this is this is about us all being better Americans, better at being American. Yeah, exactly. This is this is essentially saying, look, I have I don't have to dominate the government to have a home here. But if Mm. what we're having is a situation where power gets so centralized that people begin to fear that they have to dominate the government to have a home here, we're lost. We're just lost because that effort to dominate and that effort to exclude, and this is something that I point out in the book, that effort to dominate and that effort to exclude rips big countries apart, in part because you cannot dominate people out of their deepest beliefs. You, if you, what ends up happening is you create separatism. You create a desire to leave. You know, I go back to 1776 and, you know, look, um, the, the people of Great Britain were far more numerous than the people of the colonies. And Great Britain itself was far more powerful than the people of the colonies but the people of the colonies didn't want to be dominated. This is a this is a human impulse. You don't want to be dominated. And if you feel like the democratic process is not yielding the protections that you need, if you feel like the democratic process is breaking to such an extent that it's not going to uh, it's not going to protect your most fundamental rights, then people start to think of other alternatives. And and one of the problems we have, how many times are we going to hear between now and 2020, for example, people will say America will be over. <laughs> America will be over mm-hmm. if we lose. Well, you know, some of that rhetoric is pretty cynical and exploitive because no, they don't really believe it. But a lot of people believe it. And when you start mm-hmm. to feel desperate, uh, we can't sit there and say, well, OK, we'll just every four years run it back the same. And every four years we'll say America will be over. And nobody will really believe it. They'll know we're sort of playing political games, but they won't really act on it. Uh, But what we're seeing, the violence in the streets, the division in people's hearts, the hatred that's being expressed across this country, you're seeing the effects of that. And it can't keep going. We can't take our country for granted. David French, um, thank you so very much. Um, can Can I spend 30 seconds praying for you and Nancy and your family? Please do. I'd appreciate that. Father, I thank you for my brother David. I thank you for my sister Nancy and their precious family. I ask that you continue to place a hedge of protection around them as they continue to live out the gospel um, in ways that honor Jesus. Thank you for this opportunity to talk with David today and bless him in the interviews that he has ahead um, on the launch day of this book. Amen. David, thank you so much. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Likewise. All right, friends, we'll be right back.
Okay, yes, I still have books to give away. Go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484 if you want to enter the drawing for one of the copies of David French's Divided We Fall. I mean, today's the day. It's brand new. You don't have it yet. Uh, If you want it, go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Go out there and be a gospel-oriented, gospel-advancing person today. Love the Lord and love your neighbors. Uh, Do all the good you can with all the time you have. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.